Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law, the Universe, and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by Prosperitas, an animation agency that can help you bring your company's ideas, values, products, and messages to life with the power of engaging videos. Whether you strive to win more customers, engage, or educate your audience, Prosperitas will craft each video specifically targeted to fit your brand and vision. Visit prosperitasagency.com today to learn more. That's P-R-O-S-P-E-R-I-T-A-S agency.com to find out how Prosperitas can create the best videos your company has ever had. My guest today is John Chisholm. John is president of the Nashville Christian Songwriters. He's been a music industry executive, professional manager, songwriter, recording artist, producer, arranger, speaker, clinician, pastor, and the list goes on. He's worked with some of the finest artists and professionals in his field, like Don Moen and Dr. Robert E. Weber. Thank you so much for joining me today, John. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Pacifico. Good to be here. Absolutely. So excited to have you. So, John, take me back. Like, When did you first start playing music? When did you first fall? I grew up in a very musical family. Uh, we grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, home of the King Elvis Presley. And uh, I don't know if you were an Elvis fan or not, but uh, my mom and dad were actually very musical. My dad just loved music and was a bit of an audiophile. And he played uh, guitar, banjo, mandolin, fiddle, bazooki, and maybe something I don't even remember. Uh, and my mom played keyboards and harmonica. So I grew up in a home where we heard everything from bluegrass to symphonic music. And uh, I was in marching band and played trombone and baritone and some lower brass instruments when I was a kid. And uh, it was just part of our lives. So I don't remember ever not loving music. Oh, same. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've tried to try to dabble throughout the years, but you had big, big music fans as parents. I remember my mother when I was very young, maybe five, six years old, putting me in the middle of our living room, turning out the lights. We had a speaker on each side. She'd put on some different Beatles albums and oh, started yeah. teaching me about channeling and be like, oh, listen <laughs> to how the music is going to travel from one speaker to the other. And oh, that's so um, cool. yeah, yeah, I lo love that experience. And it was, yeah, always had music playing in the home, always lively, always talking about the benefits of music and how it's just, you know, the essence of life and, and how it brings people together. I love it. Oh, gosh, it, it really is. And I, I realized many years later that eclectic exposure 
really suited me for what I've done in the music business, working with a lot of different styles of music and a lot of different writers uh, who write in different genres and styles. I could pretty much flow with it. A chameleon could work with everything from thrash metal to some of the most conservative choral music, just because I love it all. like my dad and my mom did. So my childhood was really spent hearing, being exposed, whether, whether I claimed to love Bach and Mahler and Tchaikovsky in my early years. I've certainly grown to love those uh, in my later years, but my childhood was Pink Floyd, uh, Beatles, Jethro Tull, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, a lot of the more psychedelic kind of bands. Led Zeppelin used to go to concerts and just really get get pretty stoned. Can I say that on your podcast? And that was my childhood, getting pretty amped up and going to those concerts. And lots of R&B in Memphis, uh, Tennessee. Johnny and Edgar Winter, B.B. King, a lot of the Muddy Waters, if you know any of those names. Mm. But oh, yeah. you know, the influence was pretty eclectic and pretty broad. And something, like I said, I've just become very thankful for as uh, a music business executive through the years. Yeah, it's been really cool lately. I've got a, a five and seven year old and growing up, my dad had an amazing vinyl collection. And unfortunately, back in 2010, our, our family home burned down. Like, thankfully, oh, no one's hurt. But yeah, up in a huge vinyl collection, beautiful up in smoke. And but he also over the years had tons of, of CDs that he eventually built up as vinyl was going out. And he finally digitized it all, just re- burned it all onto his computer. And so then he was like, oh, I want to send send the boys something and so he's been in the process of like media mailing maybe eight to ten cds at a time over the past year like throughout the pandemic and so it's really great just to get to re-experience like that huge diversity of music that then my kids are here listening to everything from like bob dylan to the clash my my youngest will not stop screaming like rock the casbah like all the time so (laughs) it's just awesome when they just like you never know what song they're going to get attached to but then they'll just latch on and they're just like i love this Go. And so it's like getting them into the diverse music that I love, whether it's like electronic dance music, whether it's like the really old, or it's the Yellow Submarine or whatever. Um, love watching them just take to it. It's so fun. That's so fun. For Christmas this past season, I gave my adult daughter, I finally parted with my complete Joni Mitchell vinyl set. And uh, we gave her uh, a new turntable. My antiques finally don't work anymore and they're gone, but from my childhood, but we bought her one of the new turntables and uh, kind of the self-contained. It's it's ironic. It has Bluetooth built into it, but it will play (laughs) vinyl. And uh, I gave her my complete Joni Mitchell set and she was thrilled. And because of the, maybe this is a little bunny trail here, but because of the way music is now, she grew up loving all kinds of music as well. And I, I was, like you just said about your kids, I've been surprised that she's a bit of an old soul. She's only 28 now, but a mm. uh, bit of an old soul and just loves, she's a James Taylor fanatic and loved Joni Mitchell and she loves Roseanne Cash and all kinds of things. But 
that might have been that Joni Mitchell collection may have been one of the most popular gifts I've ever given her. I feel like a bit of me is in that, if you know it. Oh, absolutely. I can't really think of better gifts than that. Just passing on those musical legacies that have meant so much to us. And growing up like high school, like late 90s, early 2000s, alternative music, certainly huge in my own life. And now it's great because you have station. I'll never listen to that again. And then satellite radio comes along and it's like there's stations like Lithium where it's, oh, this is your bedroom <laughs> from like 1997 yeah. to do, play stuff on there. And yeah, my youngest, he's he wants to be a drummer. So he's a little wild man. And Rage Against the Machine comes on and he's like, uh, sure. you know, bulls on parade. And he's just like, pocket full of shells. Can you play pocket full of shells, daddy? And it's no idea. <laughs> just like when I was a kid, no idea what it really meant. He thinks it's like seashells, right? So he's oh, like, pocket full of shells. And just like rocking out. And yeah, I love that stuff. It's great. So fun. So fun. So at what point did you know that music wasn't just something you love, but you wanted to make a career out of it? And how did you then break into music? You know what? That covers a lot. That's probably a decade worth of living there in your question. I'll try to make it really short. And I've been in faith-based music since I was 18. And we didn't. I didn't grow up in a religious home, even though Tennessee is like the buckle of the Bible belt and not so conservative anymore. But back in the day, you just talked about growing up in the late 90s and 2000s. But man, I got some years on you. And I, I grew up in the... <laughs> I grew up, I'm old. Okay, let's just get it out. I grew up in the turbulent 60s, which this last year just was so reminiscent of all that. We moved to Memphis. I actually grew up in Alabama and uh, moved to Memphis. My, my dad was in journalism and he got a job with a newspaper in Memphis. And we moved there just within six months or so after uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and killed there in Memphis. And so it was very turbulent. That's what I remember. It was, was all how all the unrest you know, that was going on there. And man, we're talking deep South civil rights. My dad was part of the whole civil rights movement and all that. So we grew up probably in a really pretty much liberal kind of a household. So we didn't go to church. We weren't big Jesus people or churchgoers or all that kind of thing. And I fell in with that. I had an experience with Christ when I was 18 and I was pretty much a doper, pretty much a wild child. And, and, um, so to wind up where I've been all these years is just kind of insane. But I, I, I came to Christ and it's, I'd never really, even though I'd been musical, I'd never really thought about writing songs and all that kind of thing. But it was the first thing I wanted to do. And I started writing these little Jesus songs and singing in church. And it, that was just a whole world that I'd never been exposed to and never, I just didn't even know what it was. I didn't know the subculture. I didn't know the spirituality. I didn't know, I didn't know the Bible. I didn't know all that kind of stuff. And so it was like discovering a whole universe <laughs> that I'd never, you know, knew existed, never known existed before. So I, I, but because I was a singer, just a quick little bunny trail back for just a second in my high school days, all that opened up after high school. But in my high school years, my choir teacher heard me sing and got me taking voice lessons at the university there, even when I was 15, 16 in high school. And I was actually being groomed to be a lyric tenor in opera. I was actually headed into an operatic career by the time I was graduating high school. And so I was going into university to study voice and all that. But then I had this religious 
conversion out of the blue, literally. And then I got just interested in gospel music and which there's a rich heritage in Memphis and in the whole South for all that. So many, and maybe other places too, but definitely in the South. And I, I basically just walked away from the classical voice career and started developing these songs. And suddenly I wanted to be... Digital music is so different these days. It was talk about anybody with a cell phone can put out a record now. But back in that day, we're talking 1976, dude. I can't even believe I'm saying that, but uh, <laughs> like a whole lifetime ago. But it was like impossible. It was all controlled back then. It, it's so not controlled now, but anybody can put out something on YouTube in the next 10 minutes and it go viral or, or just be lost. But back then there were people that controlled it much more. I dreamed of getting some songs recorded. I sent a song up to a publisher in Nashville and just knew it was going to be cool and somebody was going to open a door for me. And I, I was ignorant and young and stupid. I didn't know anything. And got the rejection letter and cried for a day. And then just gave up on it. I, I kept writing songs just for myself and singing in church or something, but I never dreamed what would happen. And I actually had gone into serving in churches as a musician. And we, one of those positions had ended in a different uh, state I was serving in. And we came through Nashville to do a concert. I was doing some concerts back in that day and a pastor that we offered me a job. And so we moved here to Nashville and we got here, dude, you're not going to believe this, but he basically withdrew the job and gave it to somebody else. Oh. And I had, we had, I was a newlywed. We'd been married th three years then. And we had Pacifico, we had $40 to our name, 40 bucks. We were just kids. I got married. We were 22 and 23 years old and uh, we're celebrating 41 years together this summer. If she'll, wow. if she'll have me till August. <laughs> so I think she still likes me. Amazing. But we had 40 bucks, man. And we were couch surfing before that was a thing. And uh, I wound up meeting, I'm trying to make the story really short. Wound up meeting some people that I didn't even know that they were like uber important people. And they listened to a couple of my songs and signed me to a little publishing company they were starting. And I was, dude, I was throwing papers out the car window at three in the morning just to make 60 bucks a week and working some odd jobs and just trying to stay alive. My wife got a little job paying about a hundred a week. And during that first year, I was writing at the publishing house five nights a week while I was doing my odd jobs. And during that first year, I had almost 20 songs placed. That means getting on albums. People were beginning to what I was doing, and it was crazy. And I was being mentored by these people that signed me. And they were teaching me what the whole thing was about. And they saw that I was just, I say, sharp enough to stick in the ground and green enough to grow. And I was just soaking it up and they would they were teaching me it was like they would listen to my songs and they would say yeah they're sweet they're nice we can tell you love jesus and all that but these just aren't good songs <laughs> they're not these aren't going to connect with anybody and they started teaching me what it meant to connect with an audience with your words and your melodies and so within my first year because i was so aggressive and i was so hungry and i was so diligent 
and just get driven really. And I still am. I got, like I said, I got about 20 songs recorded. And so they hired me to like manage songwriters. And dude, I didn't know my butt from a hole in the ground really then. And I didn't have any degrees. I didn't have a business degree. I really hadn't even graduated from college. I wound up getting my undergrad when I was 48 and a master's when I was 50, but it's lifelong dreams. But they signed, they, they hired me and then I started managing writers. And I would, what I would do is I would run around Nashville and I would try to meet with producers and artists if they would talk to me, managers, anybody that was making a record. And I would listen to them. I'd say, okay, whose record is being uh, worked on now? What are you looking for? What tempo? What the genre? And I just, I would just ask a lot of questions. And then I would go back to our writers and I would say, okay, Billy Bob, and so I was looking for this up-tempo opener and it's got to be about this, that, and whatever. And so go write something. And then we would produce what they're called demos or demonstration recordings. We'd go in the studio and we would get a band or, or whatever and we'd put together a demo. And then I would take that and then I would set up another meeting with the producer or artist or whoever it was and play them the song. So I was a glorified sales guy in a lot of ways. And I'm, I, we wound up being like the hottest publisher in Christian music in Nashville back in the mid and late 80s. We were winning all the awards. We were doing all the stuff, right? I wound up uh, leaving that company and going to a larger company. And I wound up managing 18 full-time songwriters, doing over 200 pieces of product for that company, placing thousands of songs and it was cool, man. That was really fun. And I could give you more detail, but it was serendipitous. You know, I mean, if you're a faith-based person and God or the universe, or I'm just cool with whatever you want to call it. But those, I look back Pacifico and I, I couldn't have planned what happened. It's, I think I was just ready and ripe and doing what I knew to do. And those doors serendipitously opened. It was, it's awesome. I look back and that was 35 years ago and I just couldn't have planned it. I remember driving down Music Row, which is a very famous, it's actually two streets, but it's where all the record companies and studios have historically been. All the big, mostly country, but a lot of gospel people, some pop people like Taylor Swift started here, of course, then took over the freaking world. But I remember driving down music row when we were first here and we were homeless and it's god if there's any way could you just open the music business i didn't even know what that meant open the music business to me and that that prayer that desire that intention whatever you want to call it, it happened dude i mean and in ways i couldn't even have planned i look back on these 35 years and it's wow just crazy no words right no, totally. Yeah. It's, it's amazing what happens when you just surrender to the universe with, with the right intentions and then things just start, you know, piling up, coming your way. Mm, mm, yeah, absolutely. So that's how it all happened for me. There's, of course, there are, are multiple layers of stories and all kinds of things that go in with that. But I feel so, so blessed because I feel like I'm one, at least one person who connected in with some sense of purpose and destiny. It's been all kinds of ups and downs and all kinds of failures and all kinds of challenges, but I feel that I've been able to walk in a sense of who I am at my core 
in that musical sense. And um, like you were describing with your mom, putting you between the stereo speakers, I remember back when I was a stoner and I would come in late at night or whatever, try to sneak in. And of course that was ridiculous because I'd be falling over furniture and stuff. But I remember crawling in bed just about every night. And I had this set of Cos Pro 44A liquid filled headphones. (laughs) And I had a reel to reel. This was back way before digital. You have to remember that. And I had recorded the entire, both sides of the Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon album. Mm-hmm. And every night I'd come in and stone or whatever, and I'd put on those headphones and just go off. It was just oh, yeah. like, I would hear the first few notes of the first song, and then I would wake up at the end of the whole album. And it, I remember how spiritual music was even back then and how it takes you places that you don't even know exist or that you even want to go to. So I, I, I totally feel that I've been able to walk in music somehow out of my core. Does that make sense at all? Absolutely. It's it's a spiritual experience. And especially when you find artists that you just, you connect to on another level that you're almost like, get out of my head. Who are you? What's happening here? And especially like continuing to see that happen as things evolve. There's a lot of people, they stop as they grow up, they just stop listening to new music at a certain point. And they're just like, yep, I'm only going to listen to what was released when I was a kid or something. Or a lot of boomers like, oh, I'm only going to you know, listen to music from the 60s and 70s. And yeah. for me, my mom was she used to be a, a DJ at uh, the radio station at the University of New Hampshire. I actually had an awesome opportunity to, to do that for with her when she went back when I, during my high school years. And it was really cool because it was just you had to play 70 percent new music. And so she was always just trying to stay up and hip and even into her 40s, 50s. 60s and just what's the latest what's the cool stuff out and so that always drove me to do the same it's like i never stopped discovering new music and it's just you find people now there's 25 year olds 20 year olds 16 year olds that are just like releasing stuff and it's just like this is incredible and it's just and it's amazing because it's never going to it's just something we do and it's just a way in which humans can express their spirituality and express their interconnectedness and express like the creativity of pure consciousness. And it's just, I love it. I can never get enough of it. And it's just discovering new music and the things we have. We're so lucky. Like we're just obscenely blessed with not only the proliferation of great artists, but the proliferation of great mediums that are breaking down a lot of the old gatekeeping, like you were talking about that previously existed. And now you have a kid on TikTok in a week, get a million followers, and in a month or two, get a record deal or something. And so it's the democratization of music, I think, is one of the best things that has happened for it. Obviously, like, there's a lot of issues with compensating artists and streaming and whether people expect music for free and stuff. So there's, I think, still a lot of things to be refined there. But it, yeah, it's just incredible to see the boundless creativity that exists. I love it. Yeah, it the democratization thing from my standpoint, because I was, I grew up to be one of the gatekeepers. And w- with the companies I worked with, basically, you had to go through me and one or two other people to actually get a song on a record. And so there was more quality control. And so when I'm working with songwriters now with our company, it's like a lot of times they feel like we just slap a little melody on a few words that 
popped out of their head and that's a song. And yet sort of is, but it doesn't mean it's a great one. And it doesn't mean it's one that's going to really have any life to it. And I, I look out there and I feel like a lot of times when I'm in my pessimistic frame of mind that we were floating in a sea of mediocrity because anybody can do it. But on the other hand, it does allow for the Biebers and the Mendez and people like that to rise to the top. So I think that just the way society and, and culture works, the cream does rise. And so there, definitely a challenge from our standpoint, because we're, I'm still all about quality control. And so when I'm working with a client, I'm trying to help them to see that, yeah, sure, they can pop a song out in 10 minutes and call it good, but it doesn't mean anybody's going to really relate to it if it's just, if it's just not very well developed. So I, you know, it sounds terrible to say I miss being in control and maybe I am a control freak. I don't know, but I miss the quality control. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I know. I totally understand that side of it. For me, I think it's very interesting because there's prior to the rise of TikTok, I started to see a rise on Twitter of things like people building in public. So you might have a startup that it's like a SaaS platform or something, and someone would completely open their books. They'd basically have board meetings in public. They'd have brainstorming sessions in public, and they're just like, hey, I'm not here to gatekeep and hide everything I'm doing. This is what I'm struggling with. This is how I'm building it. And it's been fascinating to see the same thing on TikTok with musicians. And it's, someone will just be like, hey, I just put this little thing together. Let me check it out. Or they'll show them singing things to friends or family. And, and then I love there's people who are, I've thought of doing this myself because like I'm a lyricist and a singer, but like I still am not at a point where I can like play an instrument that I would be like, oh yeah, okay, I can go and do this. It's still a ways away from me. But there's people like that, that then they'll just go and sing a song and then you'll have some incredible 15 to 25 year old producer be like, oh, this song this sounds like a bop. Let's do it. And so then they'll yeah. take the vocals, they'll put an 808 on it and they'll put some backing tracks and they'll just put something together and then they'll just hit play. And you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. Know, right. And you're just like, how do I get sucked into that person's world? I feel it's something I think a lot of lately is I'm like, I'm still looking for like my musical soulmate. I'm looking for that McCartney Lennon sort of relationship where it's okay, I can bring this to the table if you can bring that to the table and we can create something magical. Like I think obviously there's plenty of solo artists throughout history have done like incredible things, but I just love to see those synergies that can happen. I think especially between two people, sometimes between larger groups, but of course you get egos involved and everything can counteract the magic a little bit. But if you can capture that sort of lightning in a bottle from a collaboration, I think that's just fantastic. And it's really cool to see Things like, oh, you have someone in like rural Mississippi meeting someone in Italy, or you have someone on the West Coast meeting someone on the East Coast and they like make music together. And it's 20 years ago, that was impossible. And now it's just a Thursday. Yeah, I love that. It's just a Thursday. And, and don't get me wrong, man. I really do love it. I'm in my 60s and I've been able to, for the most part, keep up with technology and the development of it. And I just love it. I really do. And my dad, I'm talking about my dad a lot today. Maybe I'm missing him. He's been gone a long time now, but he was, he uh, used to build electronics in the Navy back in, you know, the Korean war, man. And he was like, he was really cutting edge in some ways and built stereos. And then he wound up building computers from scratch later on in his life. He just loved it. And I think I got that from him, but I love it and I use it and our company, man, we started online five and a half years ago, long before Zoom was a thing. We started using Zoom five years ago and I wish I'd gotten some stock to begin with, but I, I love tech and I love what's happening creatively with all over the world. So I don't want to sound like I'm dissing it at all because I'm not, 
But what I just, what I try to encourage people to do is to not settle for first draft unless their first draft is freaking awesome. And some of these 20 year olds are 19, 18, heck, 14 years old. They're native to tech. They grew up in this bubble of tech that we didn't have. We had to, or I had to adapt. You grew up in it. Us older guys, we had to adapt to it. And I think that we're slower in some ways. And what it's like tech is an extension of like my daughter's life or our younger generations. It's just an extension of them. It's so natural. And so it's exponential. What I'm seeing, their creativity and their ability to just crush it without having to labor over it because they just get it. Yeah. Very different. Very different. Yeah. These days, co-writing, co-writing has been around for a long time. Even back 30 years ago, I learned so much about songwriting from writing with people that were ahead of me and not just being told how songs come together, but actually experiencing that and being mentored by my co-writers. So that's been going on a long time for the last, oh gosh, I don't know, maybe it's been 10 or yet less years. The model here in Nashville, especially in pop music, maybe not so much in, in country or even a lot of the Christian music, but uh, a lot of the pop music, especially, and some of the more pop Christian music, they have, it's usually can be a, like a three-way co-write and they have the, they call them the track guy, not to be un PC, it could be a track girl, but someone sitting there on the computer and they're dropping beats and, and looking for the um, digital structure, what they're going to be writing to. And then they have what they call the top line person that starts dropping opening lines and then they wind up sitting there over the course of a few hours and they actually write and produce the basic song they actually drop a vocal the track guy will be sitting there working out keyboard bass parts somebody might they might do some guitar parts just to try to get the hooks down you know what i'm saying so it's very different than the way I started, where we two people might sit there with a piano or a guitar or both, and you might start with a hook, a title, or an idea, but it, it wasn't really about digitizing a demo on the spot. So it's really advanced. And I've been in sessions over the last couple of years with that configuration. And it's pretty amazing to see how quickly it comes together. And if you get down the road, the process, and you might spend an hour or so going one direction and then it's, that's just not cool yet. And then you pick out the best parts of what you just did for the last hour or so and start over. You might drop a whole different kind of beat on it and go a whole different direction and pull a different hook out or realize, Hey, we got, we have three songs going here. Let's pick which one we want to write. So it's that fluidity, if you will, with tech that is so cool. I love that, but I just, I just call people up best I can to, to being excellent and not being satisfied. And that's what I see a lot of times with people I'm working with, it's they just, they're just not aware enough, conscious enough of what's out there. So we do, we do a lot of research, uh, a lot of listening, a lot of digging around. Okay. If you want to go this direction with your music, then who is out there in that genre? And a lot of times they don't know. And this, they just, they just kind of have this fantasy Pacifico. They're more in love with the idea 
of being a songwriter than they are actually dedicated to being a songwriter. So that's my little soapbox, man. I, I preach that. Thing. <laughs> I, I'm on that every day. It's come on guys. If, if you want to do this, it takes a lot to do this and to do it well. And so tech can either be a hindrance or it can be a real help, just depending on mm. how you use it. No, I totally agree. Yeah, it, it just takes so much dedication and such a grind. My cousins actually, three sisters, they're actually one of the top Christian rock groups, basically in like the 2000s, I think. And they're touring all over the country. I had like huge tour bus recording That's all cool. the time. And it's just putting so much effort into it. Then I'd randomly meet people and they'd be like, oh yeah, I know Barlow Girl. And you'd just be like, wait, what? Like that's Oh, yeah. they were Barlow Girl? That's so yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah. My my daughter was a huge fan of Barlow Girl. Oh, wow. Yeah, oh, small yeah. world. Yeah, it, yeah, it was like crazy because I went to Notre Dame uh, for, for undergrad and I'd meet people there that were just like really into Christian rock music. And yeah, so it was always funny to just come across like a random fan. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know exactly what you're talking about. So. That's so cool. Yeah, absolutely. So, John, tell me, what do you love most about your years in the music? I'm just a super relational guy. And even though I've probably messed up a bunch of relationships in my life, I, I just love people. And for me, music is about community. It's about living out your life in community and with and that's the way we're just created or uh, however you believe about that but that's how we are formed as humans man we're not really we don't thrive in isolation so for me a co-write is really a whole lot more about the fun of it than it is the end result and so i've loved i've loved being able to lead people into a broader mindset about their creativity and to encourage them, call them up. If I look back on my career and so many times people tell me that I, I really push them out of their comfort zone. And, and so I love that. That to me is a real mark of success. If I helped somebody be better than they thought they could be. So just that whole relational, but that whole leadership coaching thing that I learned from the people that coached me, I, I don't think I would have had the the mindset or, or the understanding of what that was if I hadn't experienced it. And so over time, I realized that I was living into the kind of mentoring and coaching that I had received. I was passing it on, so to speak. And so that's the, those two things specifically, I love the end result. I've got a new single that I'm going to be uh, releasing here this year. Actually, I'm working on a new EP. It's probably my 11th or 12th collection over these years. And I've had the blessing of being recorded at a high level in the Christian music thing back with one of the companies I worked with who were, they were distributed worldwide and still are. And I was able to be the artist on two of their albums and it opened up a lot of international work and ministry for me. I love that. I do love that part. But for me, being able to work with someone such as you, Pacifico, and you've got this dream of being a great songwriter. And so I love to dig into your why. Simon Sinek, what's your why? Why do you want to do this? Yeah, you love God or whatever, but 
that's broad. So what do you feel is your real mission? What's your core? Why would you spend the time and the money and the energy and blood, sweat and tears to accomplish this? Is it just to feel good about yourself? Do you have low self-esteem? Are you just looking for affirmation? Or is it something that you really feel you want to do to make the world a better place? And so if, if I could get in there and, and call you up to a higher level of that expression, greater excellence to stand out above a billion people that are dropping singles every day, then I've done something. If I've helped you expand your vocabulary, if I've helped you expand your mind, your consciousness of creativity, which I believe is inborn, I, if I can help you tap into that reservoir of hidden creativity, everybody's got talent. For most people, it's undeveloped. I believe that creativity is innate as well, and it's undeveloped. I believe that music is innate to mankind, and we've been singing around the campfires and in the caves forever. We sing about the the behemoth we slayed in the jungle that day or whatever, man. It's like we're storytelling creatures, and we do that through this crazy controlled yelling called singing. And I'm sure that the cave people were beating on rocks with their sticks and whatever. And rhythm was discovered probably about the same time fire was. And so it's just innate. And so if I can help you uh, step into that at a higher level and open your universe, that's cool to me, whether you use tech or not. I'm working with, um, I'm working with a, a a writer right now, and actually, I work. I, I'm working with dozens right now. But this, I've worked with people through these years that they're not really even great singers, and they're not musicians at all. But they're so cool in what they're doing, and they're. I'm working with this one lady, and I work with people of all ages too. We work with people with children all the way through people in their 80s. It's not age specific to me, but I'm working with this one person and this week in our one-on-one, she just started singing this thing. I'd sing it for you if it was released already, but she's coming to Nashville to, to work on this single here in June. But man, I was just blown away from the first four lines. I am like, oh, my gosh, that is so cool. And it doesn't have any tech, no tracks, nothing. She's just singing it acapella to me. And I, I grew up in a day 35 years ago where that was really one of the tests for a, a great song. Could you sing a song to me acapella and it still moved me emotionally? And as I've, and I love tech, I'm just, I've been testifying to that. Love tech, love the, all the bells and whistles. But for me, if you can bust out a song that stands all on its own, the most recorded Christian faith-based song ever is Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. was blind, but now I see. No, I just sang that really super fast, but I don't know how many people come on your show and sing, but <laughs> you're the but, first. But the point, well, I would have done a much better job, but the the point is that song has stood on its own acapella for 200 years. And it's still mm. the most recorded song in Christendom. And people like Judy Collins, who knows how many mainstream artists have recorded that song because it's just, it is like the standard. And so I grew up 
writing songs in a time when the people who mentored me, that was the test. Could you sing me a song without the bells and whistles and it still moved me emotionally? And arguably we could sing a Taylor Swift song. I'm trying to think of one right now. And yet yeah, it, it might have a little bit to it. And I love Taylor. She's cool. But the songs that depend on all the bells and whistles, they're great for shaking what your mama give you, but and for whatever you're chilling out with, but is it a song that's going to outlive you? Who's going to, the, the people that, that mentored me, one of the big questions was who's going to care about this song in a hundred years. And there are songs that have utility for the dance floor. And then there are songs that are going to be part of the fabric of your soul forever. I don't know if you've, you follow James Taylor in your life, you think of some of his biggest hits you've mm. got a friend then you've got a friend you can just sit there and sing that when you're down and troubled and you need a loving hand whatever it is some love and care it's like you those songs that bring comfort it's just those things that that was we would say minister or mean something or evoke an emotion i don't know i'm rambling sorry man i get on my soapbox about this stuff but no it's I, great i just feel like music is i got the music in me I got the music in me. It's in us, dude. And so it's so natural to want to get that out. And yeah, so we work with people trying to call them up to a, a greater expression of who mm. they are. Yeah. No, I love that. I've always been really struck by the Benjamin Disraeli quote that most people die with their music still locked up inside them. Yeah. And I think you talk about Simon Sinek. I think that's part of my why. I don't want to, I don't want to fulfill, I don't want to live out that quote. Like I, I've got a variety of things to share and music is certainly one of them and being able to urge that gap and bring people something interesting that can reach people because the feeling you get when you come across an artist that you're like, oh my God, this is like speaking directly to my soul. I feel exactly. like I am this person. I feel like this person has harvested my thoughts. And for me, a really crazy, like recent example of that was when I discovered Halsey, probably, I don't know, six, seven years ago at this point. And oh, yeah. it was like listening to her music. I was just like, how did you take this out of my brain? I, this is, I've been know, thinking right? this or something. And to have that kind of like, crazy sort of almost spiritual connection with a musical artist it just was like oh i would love to be that for someone because it's even if you just do that for one person the effect that that can have on one single other person is just so All profound right. you can change someone's life you can save someone's life you think about the the dark times of the soul that some people have whether they're extreme to the extreme that they're like suicidal or they're just depressed or something but like music is it, to me, it's the best drug in the world. It's the most powerful, you, you know, force along with love. But to me, it's just like love in sonic form. Whether it's like you talked about, whether it's thrash metal or whether it's gospel or everything in between, it's really like an expression of love. And there's just so many different ways to do it. And so, being able to bring something like that to the world, I can't think of anything better. You know what? I have to say, dude, the first time that I heard a thousand people in a church singing my song. Oh my gosh. You know, you would think, you'd think that it would be like, oh wow, dude, I did it. I'm so cool. Look what I did. And I just wept. It was so humbling. Oh, yeah. And at this point in my career, I've had over 400 songs recorded and published in place. I've written thousands. I've had the privilege and the blessing to have hundreds of songs go around the world. And I have people that write me or, or I meet people when I'm out doing stuff around the world. And they're like, you changed my life. And it's never a 
pride point for me. It's more, oh my gosh, man, if you knew the crap in my life, if you knew where all the skeletons were buried, man, it's like, so it's humbling, but it's powerful. And, and it, it really became a drive in me that I, I, to, to go from this little pothead kid in Memphis, Tennessee to this 35 year career of, of being a successful songwriter and doing all the things I've been able to do to encourage people, not only with my songs and my writing, but to encourage songwriters that I have. Wow. It's humbling. I, I just, I, I can't believe it. And to be now in my sixties and to, um, I think I'm still pretty cool, man. I'm wearing skinny jeans and I, it's to, to even to, at this point to be able to mentor and coach and pay it forward. Like the people that did that for me. Wow. It's like full circle. It's so rewarding when I see people step it up and, and have their victories. And we have songwriters that we're working with that are getting songs published and on records and radio and TV and people that are finding their voice. Like you were talking about a moment ago, people that really are connecting in with an audience, some small, some big is yes, that is it. That's it. I can envision some legacy there by bringing this to people and being able to pass this on through what we do. Oh, totally. I, I often think of, there's a video, I want to say it's like Mumford and Sons or mm. someone like that. And I think it's, I don't know how early on it was, or maybe just after a specific album, but it's like they're playing the show and the audience starts singing mm. and you can just see on the faces of the band. They're just like, holy shit oh my god everyone knows our song and so, man that's gotta just feel like that would just be bawling like a baby that's just gotta be so intense yeah that's the feeling like i said it's not like pride and arrogance at least it wasn't for me maybe it is for some people but it was more like oh my gosh it's it, this is the things that i felt in my own heart and mind the words and the melodies are meaning something to somebody else. And, and wow, there's just nothing like it. It's touches like your soul. It. Yeah, it does. It's so cool. Oh, that's great. John, this has been absolutely awesome. I've got so many things I want to ask you, but I'd love to know how, <laughs> how is a failure or an apparent failure set you up for later success? And do you have a favorite failure? I have millions of failures and gosh, too many to go into, but over the, that's a brilliant question, Pacifico. I, I think my worst failure, let's take marriage off the table. It's just too intimate to talk about here, but my wife had 41 years this year, and I believe she's my greatest gift in life. And I, there are all kinds of everyday little failures and you just keep overcoming them and, and keep on loving. But I, I think my greatest failure has been and I'm not even sure I can take credit for the failure, but not knowing my own power. That's broad, I know, but mm, no, that's, that's and, and, and I can get I can tell you some specific things, but not understanding earlier how influential each one of us really are in life and not realizing that people take their cues from how we act toward them. And if I could go back and fix some pretty big screw ups, man, I would do that. And to it's 
And, and wow, this is a deep subject. You might have to edit some of this out, but I feel that <laughs> I feel that's been my greatest failure is not taking myself seriously enough and not developing the character and the depth of leadership that I could have had. And I think I've had a tremendous amount of success, but I think that there have been times that I've been really sloppy and times that I've not taken my words seriously enough that realizing that people are going to go off and they could possibly do something very damaging in their own lives if I don't choose my words carefully. And I know that I could probably give you some real specific things and I'm happy to re-answer this question, but in more of an overarching kind of way, I'm realizing now in my 60s that there were many blown opportunities that I could have handled myself more professionally, that I could have, it's kind of, you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. Kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And as I came up in a grassroots way, I didn't have my full education when I started. And I look back and I see so many moments that I could have been a better person in business. I could have been a better person in relationships had I understood the, wow, the, the burden of leadership and responsibility that I was really afforded. Is, is that too theoretical? Do you want me to no, answer the question No, that, again? Is, no um, that was an incredibly beautiful answer, John. And, and I, and frankly, I think that it's one that is it's incredibly common for people not to understand how powerful they are and not to understand the power of their own mind. It makes me think of things like Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. And a lot of people sure. think, oh, manifestation and all of this is like hocus pocus and stuff. And it's just like you at a fundamental level, like if you can't imagine a better future or a better life for yourself, like you're never going to get it, right? You're just oh, going true. to everything that humans do becomes you know, self-fulfilling prophecies. And I find that people who can step into their power and understand what their brains are actually capable of, those are the people who are uh, most successful in the broadest sense of that word, whether it's relationships, Absolutely. helping make the world a better place. And then people who are just, whether it's a victim mentality or just a woe is me kind of thing, you're just, you're going to die on the vine. And we're really here to step into our power, to remember who we are, remember we're immortal souls. We're not, this is just a human experience and everything. And that we get to enjoy this gift of life. And it's all about making the most of it and helping other people. And yeah, if we don't believe we can do something, then we're going to be correct. But if you believe some, you can do something, like that's how you actually get there. And so I think that's a really you know common and prevalent major failure in most people's lives. And unfortunately for you, you're able to you know, overcome that and, and build something greater. And it's just sad to when you do see people that aren't able to overcome that, or they're not able to pierce that veil and, and see through that illusion that they are Absolutely. an incredibly powerful being. Well, I know it's probably for another show if you ever want to have me back on, but yeah, definitely. I over the last five years, I, I don't have time to go into it now, but I have really been studying consciousness and studying mm. a lot of other faiths and trying to understand and how can I say it, come to terms with some of the things that I look back on and feel really didn't work in my evangelical faith. And I'm, I still consider myself very much a Christian believer in Jesus and still believe that's the core 
of who I am. And if any of my, my crowd is following me, you guys don't have to worry. We're still Nashville Christian songwriters, but I've really been trying to come to terms with some things that felt like, did I fail? Did I believe in a different kind of God than the Bible really, you know, delivers to me? What is, why is it that I look back and I see so many meltdowns in that arena and if you look through my Audible library, you're going to find people like uh, David R. Hawkins and Penny Pierce and, uh, of course, Think and Grow Rich, uh, you know, uh, Napoleon Hill, all those things. And you know, I don't know, I've just been really trying to understand, you know, Wayne Dyer and the people that would be considered a Dr. Joe Dispenza, Neville Goddard, if you know who Neville Goddard was, and just people that really were trying to understand and wrestle down what is this thing called consciousness? What is this thing called spirituality? And what is the nature of this, of just human beings and having walked? And of course, there are tremendous Christian mystics throughout history for 2000 years. There's a, a vast legacy of Christian mystics that, that clung to their faith in Christ and yet had way outrageous mystical experiences. And you can go back even into the Old Testament and many of the prophets and the people that were the leaders of that time and the, the God-filled prophetic people, they had mystical experiences. So that's not anything that's unusual in, in humankind. But I've really been trying to to grapple with some of that. And it, it it's fascinating. You can just go down so many rabbit holes with all that. But that's been a real effort of study for me the last few years. And my mind's pretty blown with a lot of it. So anyway, side trip there. You can edit that out. But No, um, not at all. That's what we're here I, for. I I, I, but I love expansion. I, I love expanding mm. the way I think and understanding the full capacity of being a human. And I feel like I've laid some of that aside as an evangelical Christian. I feel that I was taught a lot of just sit back and and wait on God. And there's a right kind of way to wait on God. And I think there's a very passive wrong way to just sit and wait on God, because then if God doesn't do something and then nothing gets done. So there's this weird dichotomy and maybe some gray areas around What's our responsibility as humans to get up and do to change the world and make it a better place? Or what I see in a lot of my evangelical friends is to sit back and pray, but sit on your blessed assurance and not do crap. And then nothing happens. And you wind up with a world that's all messed up like we have. So it's like that 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 blend of faith versus activism. But that but the bedrock of that is your 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 theology and philosophy and your mentality, your mindset about, okay, how much power do I have as a human? And that's, you know what? And, and I think that feeds the answer that I gave to you about my greatest failure. I've just realized in my studies the last five years that, man, I, I had a lot more, <laughs> I had a lot more to give and to be than I've ever been because I was passive. And if something didn't happen, I would blame it on God. If something did, well, praise God. Okay, that's great. God made this happen. God made that happen. I've really been grappling with the indwelling presence of God. And I know that we call that consciousness. That How do you tease out where your DNA ends and God begins? And the Christian faith teaches mm. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's Colossians 1.27 in the Bible. So there is this 
focus on an indwelling spirit of God within our spirits. And so it's like, where do I end and he begins? And there's no way to answer that. It's like Jesus said, one of his famous quotes is, I and my father are one. And so I've been on this quest the last five years. That's been my mantra, if you will. And I don't have any problem using that word. I and my father are one. I don't know where I end and he begins. I'm not God. And yet God is in me. So does that make me part God? Part of the, the whole gospel talks about us having fellowship or intercourse, if you will, with the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Paul, the apostle, he taught that we were one with God. And it's freaky stuff, man. My my friend Kevin in Michigan, and I got, in Michigan he and I call that MBS, mind-blowing shit. It's, so, man, that's, that's just MBS. We don't have to be sucking back some beers or something to go into that, that total cosmic stuff. We have some wonderful conversations, but it's mind blowing when you, if you took the gospel at its core and what it truly is, it's mystical and it's mystery. And it's, it is, wow. I don't know. I'm just kind of going off on questions you didn't ask, but those are the things that, that I'm pondering my own life, you know? Yeah. I'll stop there, man. I'm rambling. No, it's all good. I love it. It's part of part of what we do here on this show. And yeah, for me, it's years and years of trying various psychedelics. I've always just tried to explore consciousness itself. And because I'm very much there are best practices, there are objective truths, and like you can figure them out. And we can all talk to each other and experiment and sort those things out. And it's really fascinating for all the different various journeys, millions of years into the past and future and millions of years across the universe and into parallel universes and stuff. And and still the most mind-blowing experiences I've had are actually this year completely dead sober. One was learning transcendental meditation, which was like just bonkers. And, and, the, and the other was discovering the work of Dr. Brian Weiss, especially his book, Many Lives, Many Masters, and messages from the masters that are both about his hypnotherapy practice and about past life regression therapy. And it makes a very solid case for an objective truth of reincarnation and all this kind of stuff. And it's just been like, I've had my mind blown way more with a book and a meditation practice than years of various like psychedelics and, and other things. And it's, yeah, it's just a, an incredible journey to be on. And, and it's all, the pursuit is happiness, right? It's all about, it's all about the journey uh, rather than the destination. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's really fun and, and fascinating to learn. Yeah. I did my psychedelics when I was a kid. And there you go. <laughs> oh, yeah. Been, that was the time. Much, that was the time to do it. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Did all that back then. But yeah, it's just fascinating, man, in the world of spirituality and how all that, it, it, it's infinite. It's just crazy. But yeah. Very cool stuff. And so we've obviously talked about a few, but I'd just love to know, like, what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? That is really a, a great question. And I would go back to probably the first book from a, a Roman Catholic author uh, named Brennan Manning. And Brennan was an alcoholic. He got sober, but he had a book called Abba's Child. Abba being, I don't know if it's um, not, it's not Greek. I don't think it's Hebrew, Aramaic word for Papa or father. And in a time when I felt far from God uh, because of some failures, believe it or not, I, that book really helped me be okay with God again. 
in some ways. And so Abba's child, Brennan Manning, I think was probably one of the first ones mm. I have. And that was really deeply intimate and personal kind of thing, right? Because it, mm. it, it presented God in a way where I started realizing God wasn't just pissed off at me. And even, yeah, without I, I won't expand too much, but that I, I, I was in a season where I just felt like I'd screwed up so bad God was mad at me. And that book helped restore me, if you will. So that I always have to go there. I'm looking on my bookshelf, man, because so many, so many books. I, I, I just, I can't believe it. Let me see if I can pull another one out of my head. I should have prepared for that question, right? Yeah, I think that's probably the big one. If I had to take one book to the moon, I think it would be that one. Just for, for over, over decades, that book has really been, it's just there. You know what I mean? It's part of the fabric of who I am. Um, uh, man, I'm so screwing up this question. No, uh, it's all good. <laughs> yeah. I think that I'm looking at my bookshelf. Letting Go, Dr. David R. Hawkins. I think that book probably would be right up there. And that's more of a recent addition mm. in my life. And then it got me stumbling over into everything he wrote. And he would probably be there in some ways with Weiss, with reincarnation and past lives and all that kind of thing. But uh, the whole principle of letting go has deeply impacted my wife and me. You get as old as we are and you have more life behind you than ahead of you. And so you start trying to grapple with the things that were screwed up and trying to make some sense of them. And, and there's a lot of letting go. There's a lot of forgiveness that you mm. have to then issue into the spirit realm to just be okay with yourself. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Um, and I, I think probably then the other author and the one book that probably has influenced me deeply is uh, another Catholic writer, a friar named Richard Rohr. And it's R-O-H-R. -R, and he's incredibly popular, but he has a book called Immortal Diamond. And I would say that book, I would say those three books. Yeah. Immortal Diamond is really more about this treasure of our soul or spirit and kind of grappling with the eternality of it. And the fact that our soul is like a diamond. His metaphor is it's a diamond that's been just slogged over with all kinds of crap and, and it's buried under all this stuff. And the more you can kind of take off the dirt and grime and all the, the stuff we believe about ourselves, that you uncover this eternal immortal diamond. So it's a beautiful picture, beautiful book. And anybody, even if you're not faith-based, even if, the, if that's not your thing, it's still a beautiful book. In fact, all those, the Hawkins, his, he, he wasn't faith-based in the same way, but man, deep stuff. MBS. Totally. I'm all yeah. for it. John, this has been an absolutely awesome conversation. Loved getting to speak with you. Definitely going to have you back probably multiple times because I feel like I could talk to you for days. And so it brings me that. to my last question. And that is, what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? My wife. Donna agreeing to marry me and uh, living out her life with me all these years, man, and putting up with my crap all these years, basically raising a toddler. <laughs> me, I, I would have to say that above all things. I, I really, you know, her forgiveness when I've screwed up and just loving me 
unconditionally. And that's an extended, long, decades-long kindness. You know what I'm saying? It's, I, I know I've given you some broad answers, but that would have to be it. I, I just feel that I owe her everything. And uh, few people that I know say that or can get to say that. And so what a privilege to, to experience her kindness over all these extended years. And I believe we'll live out our lives together. And that's the kindness of God, right? It's just uh, the serendipitous, providential, unexplainable thing that we met and knew that we were we were intended somehow. There are there are other things, obviously, but doors that have opened that didn't have to, such as I've described with the early music people that took me in basically off the streets and gave me mentoring and coaching that I didn't deserve. But man, I would just have to say that I'm just so grateful uh, for my wife, Donna, and for the life we've been able to have. Beautiful answer. I love that. John, again, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to speak with you. Pacifico, man, the pleasure is all mine. And if I could change my name, I would love to be named Pacifico Soldati. That is <laughs> that is the freakingest, coolest name, man. Oh, thank you. I love it. Thanks for having me on today, man. I've um, thoroughly enjoyed it. Of course, absolutely. So today's episode is brought to you by Prosperitas, specializing in making stunning videos to help you win more customers and look your best online. Visit prosperitasagency.com today to learn more. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. And if you'd like to support this show even further, I'd love to invite you to become a patron of the show. For as little as $5 per month, you can help us continue to produce high-quality shows with amazing guests like you heard today. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash the LUE podcast. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Soldati, wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness. Yeah.